2: Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Amanda Malko, CMO of G2. Amanda is a three-time CMO and award-winning marketing executive with a track record of leading high-growth companies at the intersection of marketing and technology. Prior to joining G2, Amanda was the head of partner programs and marketing at MailChimp. On this episode, Amanda reveals the many different ways that her customers are successfully using G2 why she chooses not to come into a new company with any prior assumptions, and how she thinks about balancing customer retention versus generating pipeline. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com.
2: So please enjoy this interview between Amanda Malko, CMO of G2, and your host, Ian Faison.
1: Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we are joined by the amazing Amanda. How are you?
0: I'm well. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, excited to have you on the show uh, excited to chat about G2, one of our favorite websites, one that you can find Caspian on. Indeed, we have a profile. We're still working on it. It's, uh, it's a work in progress, but we do have one. And it was an exciting development for uh, for me because it was, it was fun to get the company on there. And it's a company, or er, uh, and G2 is a, a website that we are on. I feel like quite literally every day uh, as marketers, uh, as people looking at different companies and evaluating software. So excited to chat about all that stuff and your background in marketing. So, first, did you have a first job in Demand Gen?
0: First job in Demand Gen. The reason I love this question is sort of, I started my career in sales. And so, from that perspective, I think that is one of the ultimate places to start your Demand Gen career. And so I really enjoyed and appreciated sales and felt that was very helpful before I transitioned to the marketing side.
1: And so flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about your role as CMO of G2.
0: So uh, my my role at G2 as CMO is really about kind of two parts. One is evangelizing certainly the company and the role that G2 plays both for software buyers and for sellers we want to be the place for software where anyone in the world looking for software can go and can find it. it sounds like you're using it regularly and I'd love to hear that. I found it very helpful even before I joined the company as well. And then for software marketers to be able to really build their brand and their business, putting the customer at the center of that and really leaning into their customer voice and their most vocal champions as well. And then I would say the second part of my role is really education. Uh, So you mentioned that you have Caspian on G2. So I see your profile and a big part of what uh, myself and my team are doing is really helping companies like yours figure out how to best utilize a platform like G2 to get more reviews, to build your presence and your reputation within your category and industry.
1: I'm ready. Uh, I'm so ready because it's something that um, I, I forget when I when I filled it out, but our space is very kind of ill-defined for, you know, podcasts as a service, something that we have kind of pioneered and, and created in a way. And so it's something that, you know, is, is something tricky for, you know, a, a site like, you know, G2, because it's so new and there's not a lot of people that use that terminology or, or or virtually nobody that uses that terminology and things like that. But I think that it speaks to just like this very, very beginning of, what G2 will become and continues to become every day which is you know the go-to place for everybody to you know evaluate uh, evaluate software and evaluate companies.
0: Yeah, I mean we think about that a lot when in our personal lives we use review sites for everything. I just moved and I was looking for a plumber and what is the first thing that I do? Well, I go to Angie's list or I go to Yelp and I look for who has the best reviews in my area. But for B2B so often, we're, we're calling CMOs we trust, we're calling marketers we trust, or people that we know in the industry and saying, like, what do you use for this? And it feels like it's time for B2B software and, and really the B2B industry in general to have some of the same things we enjoy in our personal life to make the purchasing process that much easier. I can spend you know $100,000 a year on a piece of software and before G2 not really have a trusted place where I could go but I can get that for the plumber down the street. And so uh, that certainly to me was something that was really exciting uh, as a software buyer when I first discovered G2. We,
1: We ask, I mean, this is obvious to our listeners, but we ask uncuttable budget items in every episode. And more and more people are saying, you know, review sites as part of that, you know, mentioning G2. It's so obvious, right? Like you said, we do this for all of our consumer goods. I mean, I don't know the last thing that I looked at something that I didn't look at reviews and now you even have, um, you know, go try to buy toilet paper during the pandemic or even try to buy it now. Um, my, my, I almost bought, you know, uh, paper towels the other day that had $160 shipping (laughs) fee, um, attached. And luckily I looked at the reviews, uh, and saw all sorts of people saying that it was a ripoff and things like that. But it speaks to like, this is, you know, going to be, the way that people buy for a long, long time, um, until there's a better way that comes along. And I don't really know what that would be. So, you know, people are always going to ask their friends, these things happen in private anyways, and now they're kind of happening in public.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I think the pandemic certainly accelerated that for a lot of categories. Uh, you know, you look at, I was reading about back to school and a lot of the things that we used to rely on going to stores like a brick and mortar store we're buying online. And so I think digital transformation was really accelerated during COVID and we're seeing that in software as well. Just the way that people are buying is very different, especially when your sales force can't be with customers in person. That really does accelerate the value of word of mouth and and existing customers serving as advocates for your brand.
1: Okay, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree.
0: With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle
2: of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not?
1: This is the place where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen and marketing secrets. So we know a little bit about G2. Taking a step back, who are the types of folks that you're selling to? Uh, who are your customers and p- personas that are that are buying g two on on a daily basis?
0: We're a marketplace. So we really serve two distinct audiences, and i'll I'll break down each of those audiences uh, one by one. So the first is software buyers. We have sixty million software buyers. and software buyers really could be anyone from marketing professionals to i t professionals. and those marketing sales and it are, the big categories of software buyers that we serve, but it's really anyone who needs business software. So I, I, the other day was just looking at, well, what are the categories that I I don't know about? And as an example, there is roller coaster design software. So if you're looking for roller coaster design software, we actually have a whole category um, of amusement park software and you you can find the right software for your needs there. So our software buyers really run the gamut. And then there, on the other side of the marketplace, there are software marketers. So marketers of companies like Adobe and Google and Autodesk who are customers of G2s. And that really is a core part of the way that they're going to market is, is really going to market on G2, thinking about their brand presence, their reputation, how do they get more reviews and make sure that they're really positioning well in the categories that they serve.
1: And so those marketers, people like the folks that are listening to the show, like the the CMOs who who state uh, their review sites are, are one of their uh, uncuttable budget items, what are the types of like results that you you all are driving for them?
0: Yeah, it kind of depends on how they start using G2. And so what I find interesting is that people start utilizing G2 in a number of different ways. And so the way that they measure ROI tends to be different depending on the nature of who in the organization is really, is really uh, owning the review presence. I personally think that the most successful companies really have multiple metrics that they're supporting with G2. One being, how are we ranking in our category and how are we utilizing the content on G2 to really build our brand and our reputation? One of the beautiful things about G2 is that you can actually help define your category and then lead your category with the right level of investment and making sure that your customers are really on there providing reviews and feedback. And so if you're trying to build a category leading presence, G2 is a great place to do that. And so the metrics there are really about how are you ranking the number of reviews and really the frequency of those reviews as well to show that you're really leaning into your best customers. On the flip side, we have buyer intent as an offering, and so uh, the customers who really adopt G two fully are the ones who are also utilizing the intent data that they're seeing in their category and with competitors, and using that to really drive leads and sales.
1: When folks, you know, sit down with one of the people on your team to figure out, you know, how they want to buy and, and your type of funnel, are they usually kind of this bottom up sort of like filling out their profile? Maybe they, you know click that they want to upgrade on the site, things like that? Or is it more of an outbound uh, approach?
0: Yeah. So one of the interesting things is we have we have all sizes of customers. So we have small business, mid market, and our enterprise is actually a fast growing piece of our business. And so the go to market motion looks very different. If you're a small business, you're probably going to start out with our freemium solution. Um, you probably saw that as yep. you were setting up your profile. Like it's great for SEO. You should, everyone should claim their product and profile on G2. For our enterprise customers, they really want a higher touch and they're more likely to come to us directly and engage in using some of our paid review solutions so that they can actually go a little bit faster in investing in their profile. They can get a little bit more handholding um, in terms of how to set it up and really get a high volume of reviews pretty quickly. They get training, onboarding, things like that. So the motion does look different depending on the size of the business and where they want to invest.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like you know, it's at the point where any, any large enterprise, um, or company of a certain size is gonna at a minimum have some type of paid portion on here. Right. I mean, it seems like, is there, I mean, do you see, it's like, you know, when people raise series a or something like that, then they, then they, you know, make that upgrade or something. Or, I I mean, I, it just seems like there's, there's no way that everybody, uh, uh, or maybe i'm wrong maybe there maybe you maybe the the market needs to needs to learn more i don't know
0: i would say on the enterprise side i do think there's a lot of opportunity for g2 i see companies that haven't claimed their profile and and i think what a great opportunity for them if they're an enterprise customer that that hasn't claimed their profile and on that, the startup side i see startups that you know they set up their website and they set up their their G2 profile. Like that's just a it's starting to be a thing that we see when businesses are getting founded. They feel like, Hey, I need to be credible. I'm going to create my G2 profile. So I do think that, you know, small businesses and and even our mid-market customers are really ahead of the curve when it comes to thinking about how can they make sure they've got the right digital footprint and having G2 and a profile and presence on G2 is really a core part of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, you need to have a crunch base, you need to have, you know, right. these these certain things that um, are more important. It's funny, you know, we, not that this is all Caspian specific, but because it's, because uh, it's interesting to kind of talk through this, is we push back basically having a bunch of different social accounts to focus on like our primary social account is LinkedIn, because that's where predominantly where people, you know, do business with us. And there's a bunch of different reasons why I wanted to do that and didn't want to do the other social accounts. I, I just generally feel like, you know, you should create them when you have something to say, but, um, like we have them, but we don't, you know, kind of use them. Whereas I think like creating G2, creating Crunchbase, uh, creating a bunch of those different things where, you know, that is the credibility that shows that someone else you're in someone else's system. And, where people can look up information about you. Right. And so it's like, even if, you know, we're not a company that's, you know, going to raise a hundred million dollars tomorrow, um, being able to, to have that kind kind of third-party thing. It's mind blowing to me that there's a lot of enterprises that have not got their, that have not claimed their profile. That seems like it's insane.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think it's a, it's really leaving your brand up to you know, up to either circumstance, happenstance, or just like customers who are leaving reviews and you're not participating in the conversation. And I think that is a shame because I think right now customers really want to see that you're participating in the conversation with them and where they are. And they're more likely to do that on a place like G2 or on a community site where they can get insights and feedback from their peers. So meet them where they are. And so I think there is an education opportunity when you're a startup or you're earlier stage, you're thinking about all those places. Like you said, we need to have a LinkedIn presence. We need to have a crunch base. We need to have a G2. When you're more established, there's a, a playbook. You've sort of established yourself. And I think sometimes it's harder to take a step back and say, well, what's new that we're not investing in that we really need to be thinking about? And I certainly think COVID and a lot of what's happened over the past two years has accelerated Thinking in at enterprise companies about what do we need to do to make sure we're maintaining our relevance with our core customer and how their buying behavior is changing.
1: You know, it's funny, even just in the way that I've been talking about it is it is it's still all about me, right? It's like, you know, the company needs to set up a profile, needs to do this. It basically you're setting up all these things to provide credibility for for people to find you, so that you can, you know do more sales when, like, at the end of the day, even with social channels, that's why, you know, I made the point earlier about social channels. It's actually about listening and responding, mm-hmm. which is so funny that you keep saying with G2 is about responding to people, which is so important. And and I think that that is kind of like the the fundamental change in who owns this. Is this marketing? Does, is marketing the team? Is it customer success? Like, who's the team that's responding to all these things? Because it's way you know, this is, you know, show versus tell, right? You could run a bunch of ads and tell people how awesome you are, or they can just go read how you respond to customers in real time on a, on a site like G2.
0: Absolutely. I like how you said that. And I do think ultimately, it tends to be marketing who manages the presence, but it it shouldn't be just marketing that is involved. And I say that because I'll give you an example. A customer the other day they're one of our mid-market customers, and they're really a leader in their category, which is in, is in MarTech. And they just came up with this brilliant way of using G2 that I'm seeing more and more of our customers do, which is they do have their customer success team respond to all of the reviews. But then they go a step further, and their marketing team actually goes through all of the reviews and the feedback picks out who are our best, most vocal customer champions, and then puts them into their program for those customer advocates where they get all kinds of perks and rewards, but oh, by the way, they're gonna continue to elevate those customer voices through their marketing efforts, their advertising, their PR and success stories, et cetera. And they're using G2 as the foundation for building those relationships. And I thought that was such a smart way to use the platform. And again, it's it was owned by marketing but it really involved all teams. Um their sales team was also involved using the buyer intent product to really say okay if there's someone who's looking at one of our competitors and they're a current customer, our team should probably know about that. And conversely, if there's a prospect on another competitor page that's not using us, we should reach out to them too.
1: Well, we all fight for consideration, right? It's like that's one of the things that if you're if you're not the category leader, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're the one, uh, who's being compared to everyone else. And if you're, if you're someone who's not being compared, uh, you want to get in there. And if you're the category leader, you want to make sure that nobody really sees any of this, you know, smaller options as, as that sort of thing. It seems like, you know, something like G2 where it's automatically, you're being compared, you want to be compared with all this stuff it's a little scary for marketers though at times right you you don't want to be uh you know beholden to a bunch of reviews about you as you're sitting next to your peers
0: I definitely understand that as a Cmo and as a marketer it's a fear that you're you're going to lose control of the message or you're going to be positioned in a way that you ultimately may not be as as happy with. And I kind of liken it to the early days of social media Uh, and I might be dating myself, but I remember very vividly uh, and I worked in the social media marketing space at the time. And I remember very vividly having conversations with CMOs about the need to participate, but there was this fear of, but they're saying all these things about me that I don't like. And it's like, well, you have two options. One is to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, but it does. And it's not going to change. And in fact, I think this is going to be a really big deal and shape your company's reputation, which obviously that that's very true today about social, or you can participate and you can get ahead of it. And the people who participated and got ahead of it, those brands were the ones who ultimately succeeded in the long run because they had a a head start over their competitors and how to really participate in an authentic way in the space.
1: So you have been a CMO multiple times. You came into this role not too long ago. Can you share kind of like what was your first ninety days like? How did you think about approaching this? Like like I said, you've already done this a couple of times. Um, did you have a certain kind of marketing philosophy that you came with or a playbook?
0: I definitely had a structure to the first 90 days, but I would say in terms of my philosophy, my philosophy is really to not come in with assumptions and rather to come in and really listen. And I think that's core to anyone coming into any role, but certainly in a CMO role, it would be easy to say, well, I've done this gig before. I'm going to come in with my playbook and we're going to run that. Uh, I really think... Every business is different depending on you know the team you have, the trajectory of the business and where they are, uh, and what's worked and what hasn't in the past and the knowledge that the business carries with them. So my first 90 days were really about listening uh, and listening to the team, both our internal team and then our customers. And so I actually did a listening tour with our customers, and I met with customers across all of our segments and spent a lot of time interviewing them and really looking at what are they doing with the platform how are they finding success? And my favorite question, which is, what, are we, what could we be doing better? And what are we not doing that you wish we did? And that really has helped shape my thinking. And we also went a step further, and we're undergoing some of our own market research in surveying both our software buyers and our software sellers, um, so that we can really understand them even better to shape what we do with our product, but also our marketing efforts.
1: Let's get into our next segment, The Playbook
2: this is what's great about sports this is what the greatest thing about sports is you play to win the game hello you play to win the game
1: that's where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win i know you're new to g2 so you can reach into the bag here and talk about three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items from either stuff you're doing at g2 from previous companies or uh or or anything in between
0: I love this question. Three tactics that I would not cut. The first would be thought leadership. And so that might be a cheat because it's not really a channel. uh, But I definitely think thought leadership would be my number one. And I say that because uh, especially if you're in businesses like the ones I, I tend to work within, which are creating categories, it is critical that your customer understands and believes in your category and you cannot win their trust. You cannot win their business if they don't understand your category, let alone your product. And so I think thought leadership that's backed in data, ideally proprietary data to help your customer understand your space, the value of investing in your space um, is a really critical one. I'll give you an example. I worked in search marketing at the very early genesis of search marketing and one of the things that was our best performing campaign was a search insights report because it was very early in the days of google and people did not understand how much should i be paying for keywords i feel like i'm paying way too much for these things and is it really valuable and so the company that I worked for we were in the martech space in search and we created a report that basically just said here's how much you should be paying for keywords in different categories these are the most expensive ones these are the least expensive ones and here's how pricing is changing and ps it was going up and up and up because google was looking like they were going to do very well for themselves and what we discovered was that our customers loved it because it gave them education and value Prospects wanted it. So it was our highest performing lead gen activity. And it was great for press. We actually timed it with Google's earnings reports. And so we got coverage every single quarter without fail from every major news outlet who wanted to understand how were people bidding on keywords and were they paying more than last quarter. Because if they were, that was a pretty good indication that Google was going to do well that quarter. And so thought leadership is sort of the, the if you do it right, it's the rising tide that lifts all boats, both from a brand awareness perspective and certainly for gen. So that's my number one. I would say the second one is customer marketing. I think retention is the foundation for growth. And I think it's one that's easy to overlook as you're focused on pipe gen and getting more customers. But if you invest in customer success, advocacy and building a community, then you're going to continue to have a very successful business because you're gonna retain and grow the customers that you already have. So of course I would say as part of that, you need to invest in G2 and G2 should be your uncuttable piece of your customer marketing budget. I had to put a plug in there.
1: Of course. I was going to say, I should have started this off with, of course, G2 is, is going to be one of these, but I do but I do want to expand on that a little bit because customer marketing is something that I would say is not necessarily in a lot of people's top three uncuttable budget items, but I would say we're trending to that direction, um, whether it's putting customers in our existing marketing or, you know, breaking it out as a separate function. Um, yep. Yep. And the, the, the review piece of this is like part of customer marketing now. Is that where it should be sitting?
0: Well, so I, I think that customer marketing, it's really interesting because I see the structure of customer marketing done many different ways. Sometimes it's its own department. And for some organizations, that makes sense, especially when you're a larger organization and then the budget can sit there. Oftentimes we see the budget sit with product marketing. And I think that that can make sense as well, because they're really stewards of the product, the product positioning and how they're positioned on the grids, for example. My personal view of customer marketing is that it's everyone's job within marketing, or it should be. And so customer marketing as, as a strategy is really about how do we make sure we make our customers extremely successful with our products, and also so successful that they beget new customers. And if you look at it that way, there is a role for customer marketing within your PR function of ensuring that you're elevating champions, vocal champions within your overall brand narrative. There's certainly a role potentially in demand gen, if not in its own customer marketing department of driving adoption and ensuring successful utilization to help with retention. And then certainly from a product marketing perspective, you want to make sure That your products are really well utilized by your customers and that you're learning from them to continue to improve the way you position message and even the products you create. So I think doing customer marketing right is very hard in part because it's truly there is some component of it that could be every function's job. That was a long answer to your question, but I think about it a lot because we see it done so many different ways.
1: Yeah, I do too. I mean, I I think that that's like the question, right? Is like, is it cross-functional or not? Like, is it just something that should live in every aspect of your marketing that someone, you know, is like a center of excellence almost, or is it its own separate function? Like, it's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, and I tend to think of things like when you're trying to incubate things, especially if they're new and you're a larger organization, creating a center of excellence for it is often a really great way to approach it. Because first of all, you have an owner for it. That's very clear. I'm responsible for driving adoption, driving retention, driving word of mouth advocacy from our customers, whatever the metrics you want to set are. And they can go around and make sure they work with the right stakeholders to make that really successful. So I think it's okay to say, we're going to start with a center of excellence, knowing that ultimately it might make the most sense for it to eventually live in different places, depending on the metric and the objective. But sometimes to get things off the ground, you do have to create that center of excellence and make sure that you have clear ownership to drive it forward cross-functionally.
1: Okay. What's your third uncuttable?
0: I'm definitely giving you my longest answers for this one, but it's a great question. Uh, Digital demand gen. So I would say specifically under that would be ABM and email. I mean, I came from MailChimp, so you know I'm going to say email. So I look at ABM account-based marketing as a strategy that you can deploy across different channels. I definitely think email is just a bread and butter channel that if you do it exceptionally well, can really help you nurture relationships and also drive great demand gen. It's not maybe the sexiest answer, but I will tell you it has the highest ROI from all the teams I've worked with.
1: What are some, what are some tips that you saw at MailChimp uh, that enterprise technology companies, B2B companies can, can leverage here?
0: I would say personalize more than you think you need to. And so I I see a lot of companies that think they're personalizing because, oh, we get digest A to this company and digest B. And by the way, we used a name tag. That's not really, I mean, that's personalized. I I will give credit for that. I think if you can be very savvy with your segmentation, and I mean that requires a great marketing operational infrastructure to do that, so that it's dynamic and and you're not you're deduping and you've got you know the right permissions and everything. But I think if you can be really savvy with your segmentation, you can start to have a really powerful personalized dialogue with your customers that responds to things that you're doing within your within your product. If they're inactive for a period of time, you can have that kind of conversation with them, but also you can respond to things that they're looking on at your website on or your, within your product and start to really personalize the communications you're sending them based on those activities and those signals, not just the things that you know about them, like their name and where they live.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. I made a joke about the name tag uh, a few episodes ago basically that exact thing of like people think that they're personalizing (laughs) because they have a name tag. Uh, And you're like, hey, nobody care, Nobody, it's so lost on everyone now at this point. Like nobody, when I see an email, it's like, hey, Ian, I'm like, I'm not like, oh, wow, they must know me. It's like nobody cares anymore. So it's just so funny that, that you said that. I think, I think that's exactly right. I think it's like, there's really no end that we could, I mean, if you think about salespeople, right, they're personalizing everything. Yes. Like to a hyper hyper crazy degree, including like when they're sending why they're sending, oh this person's going to Aspen this weekend, so I don't want to send them a thing. Like right. the, everything that they do is personalization. It's essentially their whole job is to try to figure out how to make something very complex and difficult easy to buy for that person. And in marketing we're like, "No, we have four lists." Like, you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: I know it's Amanda and she's based out of Atlanta. Yeah. I'm going to crush it with this email. Yeah, it's so true. And so I think the you know, I don't think the Holy Grail is necessarily emulating what the sales team does because their personal knowledge and relationships and authenticity is always going to be core to how they win. And, and there's such an important role there. I really think the job of, of marketing is to sort of bridge that, divide between sales, product, and marketing and say, well, how can we get smarter with the automated communications that we're running based on things that maybe even sales can't always know? Like, what did this person do or not do within our product? What are we seeing about their behaviors within our digital metrics that our sales team may not always have the latest and greatest? I mean, hopefully we're passing along the relevant information, but there are things within the product that I know we saw very very successful at MailChimp was that if you're inactive and we had a specific period of time, we knew that if we sent a certain email and we A-B tested all the messaging, that that was going to be our win back. Because if you don't engage after that period of time, we know that you're immediately going to be within some window thereafter, a retention risk. So there are things that you know, marketing can do, but it requires that cross-functional collaboration with product and sales. And it really does require a much deeper level of personalization um, than I typically see with marketing teams today. And it's hard to do. That's why I think a big part of it, it's hard to do, especially to set up the technology infrastructure to do it well.
1: Yeah, it is hard to do. It's a great point. Um, If it was easy, then everyone would do it.
0: Everybody would do it. Yeah.
1: How do you measure success of, uh, of your campaigns?
0: So a couple of different ways. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of multi-touch attribution, but I think it's, it's right for a certain stage of business because it isn't, you know, it's, it requires an investment to do it well. So I definitely look at what is the ultimate contribution and we try and align on North Star Metrics. Uh, we use a framework actually called v 2 mom which is modeled after the Salesforce method. And so we tend to have uh, measures for each of our major initiatives. Um, right now, we're very much measured on pipeline and, and we look at net new pipeline versus expansion, for example. But then underlying that, there's always supporting metrics and how do we look at what channels are actually driving the most return and then what channels are having an impact, but maybe... Don't always have the direct correlation when you look at, you know, last touch attribution, for example.
1: Yeah, interesting that you all use the uh, V two mom. It's it's such a great reminder to make sure that you're nesting priorities for your marketing team, so that people know where they should be spending their time, effort, and energy, and and what that rolls up to. I mean, V2MOM is great because it rolls all the way up to the CEO, but, um, so you know that you're on the right, on the right track there, but, uh, but yeah, what a great reminder.
0: And I think the other thing that I really like about it is that if all teams do it, it points out where you have shared metrics. And so we have a shared metric, uh, with our product team, which is adoption. And I think it's okay for there to be shared metrics. In fact, I think it's necessary so that you sometimes can say like, this is one we're going to have to own together. Um, and we're going to drive it together and let's talk about how we do that. So I, I think there is a tendency when doing things like a V2 mom or an OKR exercise to try and keep everything really clean where every team has, well, we're going to own this one and you're going to own that one. And I do think that sometimes you really need to share metrics and be very clear about what tactics does each team contribute, but know that ultimately you're both going to be doing it together.
1: What is your piece of advice for someone who's trying to figure out their G2 strategy?
0: I would say to start with your measures. Start with what are we really trying to achieve. And I will give you some examples of things that I've seen from other customers. Uh, One could be I just want a really good position on the grid but then be clear about how you're going to use that. So hopefully you're using that content in your advertising, which by the way, our data says that performs really well when you use G2 grids and content in your advertising and demand gen efforts. So be clear about what you want could be position on the grid. And then we're going to use that to see a higher return on our advertising expenditure and and creative. It could be, we're going to use this to increase our PR awareness as a leader in our category It could be that we're going to use their intent data to drive a targeted campaign and hopefully see much higher, uh, lead to conversion ratio because these are real in market buyers. Uh, it could be all of the above, but I would say, start with the measures. And of course I'm using the B2 mom vernacular, but start with the measures and then really think about who's going to drive that forward and lean on G2. We have a lot of resources to help, uh, customers, whether you're a free customer or a paid customer, really successfully adopt the platform for whatever your goals are.
1: I was going to say, what advice would you have for me? But we're in the nascent stages of of our profile uh, adventure. So no, no judgment yet.
0: (laughs) I mean, if you're in the early stages, what I would say is put together a review campaign, because you'll learn a lot just by starting with collecting feedback. And so it's actually, and this is kind of coming full circle. I didn't think about this, but it's kind of like what I said for my first 90 days. It's really, how do I put out some signals so that I can really listen and understand before I engage? And so the first thing I would do if you're just starting out is to really get some reviews. And it could be as simple as I have customers who email me all the time and say, "Will you review our software. And if I have a good relationship with them, like, of course, if I like the software, I'm going to be a champion if they ask me. It it could be as simple as that. The other thing you can do is if you have in-product notifications, you can actually use, we have a number of integrations you can use to actually um, do in-product notifications to get people to review while they're using the product, which is also a really successful way to do it.
1: My issue with, the, uh, with getting the reviews was that we just did a, a customer NPS survey. And so we just did that. And I'm like, and I'm like, I can you just do you want to ask copy them again? and paste what you just said in that <laughs> survey and then put it into G2?
0: You can ask them. I mean, why not? I know. You know, if you have a relationship in particular, I mean, I, I think sometimes, especially if they've already written it and you can provide the, hey, you just wrote this. Could you just write it over here? Like, I think that's a great thing to ask your customers to do.
1: All right. I'll do it. It's my promise to, from from my voice to our listeners ears i'm going to we're going to get our customers on G2 i
0: love it and next nps survey you can have a little checkbox of like would mm. you be open to leaving us a review on G2 and then you'll have a signal that you can follow up with them and feel
1: The beauty of the platform is such that I can't just go and upload all of their stuff.
0: (laughs) Correct. You can't do that. (laughs) We take trust very seriously. They will have to authenticate with either their work email or LinkedIn, but uh, at least you'll have some signal on who would be willing to do that. And certainly the NPS study is a great thing that you're doing.
1: So you came into this role g2 you have this massive website um, with tons of traffic uh all sorts of you know targeted buyers bunch of those people want to buy g2 obviously um how do you think about your website have you looked at conversational marketing um and uh and chatbots and and you know real-time conversations and all that
0: yes this is a hot topic within the company actually so I did say that I listened a lot within the first 90 days, but of course you have to have quick wins. So we had a lot of quick wins from a marketing perspective. And one of the first things I did was look at the chatbot and we just put a new chatbot on our site actually. So we're testing it now and definitely give us feedback on it. But I would say there's multiple components to what we're trying to do with conversational marketing. One is really make it easy for people in the marketing space to just be able to quickly get in touch with us, to set up their profile, to get feedback and advice. But also if you're interested in our paid offerings to learn more about those, it seems like such an obvious thing, but doing that well in multiple regions for multiple products is something that is an evolution for us. And I think we've made some great strides just in the first three months with this new experience. Customer support and particularly buyer support, is the other thing. Because we're a marketplace, when you come to our site, we don't know if you're there for Caspian or if you're there to do one of the many software searches that you're, you're doing to find the right software for your business. So we look for signals of where are you on the site to serve you the right experience. And for our buyers, they really are looking for help in finding the right software. And so that is something we're continually working on to figure out Something we call buyer assistant. How can we actually use conversational marketing to lead you through the site in a way that actually helps facilitate that software discovery journey?
1: Let's get to our next segment dust up. Uh oh, here comes Trevor.
0: You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a
2: wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And-
1: about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else, how do you develop a good relationship with sales? How do you know if it's not working? Have you gotten any memorable dust-ups over the years?
0: Memorable dust-ups. I've been really fortunate. I've had some great relationships with sales. And I think in part, it starts with the fact that I was on the sales side for a while. And so... I like to believe that I have a lot of empathy. I'm not going to say it's always been perfect at all. I think it's like any relationship, it's a journey. Um, I think the biggest advice that I have and the thing that I try and instill in my team and, and work on is to treat goals as shared goals because ultimately our job is to contribute to revenue and to make sure that we have a feedback loop. And a lot of times I see... With teams, and I would say this is a desktop early in my career, I looked at that as, well, I'll just tell you what we're working on, but it has to be more than that. You have to solicit feedback because the sales team is the front lines of the business and they're going to have feedback and that's great. And so now I have a feedback process that we're starting to utilize at G2 where you actually get feedback on the campaigns before they go and market and then after as well. And when you do retros, you do them with your sales team. You don't just do them as a marketing team.
1: Let's get to our final segment, Quick Hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with Qualified. Qualified Prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more. It's quick and easy, just like these questions. We love Qualified. They're the best. And my pal, who's a CMO who's been on this podcast, she baked off Qualified with a competitor, and they crushed him. So go check it out, qualified.com quick hits. Amanda, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, if you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing?
0: I would probably be running a bakery.
1: Favorite thing to bake? Favorite patisserie?
0: I would say something easy and something hard. So cakes and I'm still trying to figure out croissants. If anyone has tips, please send them my way.
1: I was gonna say so. So my my wife was a baker in a former life, uh, and uh, and she was like, croissants are absolutely impossible. They're so hard.
0: They're so hard. They're so hard. I I whenever I see one now, I can't look at it the same way again.
1: Yeah, she. Uh, that's how she felt. She said, "What was it?" Um. Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Oh flan. Um. She's like, I've I've eaten. Just pounds and pounds and pounds of flan in my in my days as a baker, so I can never look at it again. And now she's like, "Okay, I can I can eat it again." Um,
0: I haven't done flan, so now I know I should either embrace it or avoid it. I don't know which yet.
1: <laughs> well, I was like, "Well, how do you eat so much?" She's like, "You have to taste it." And I went, ah, I yeah. never taste anything I'm I cook, so that's probably
0: that's like rule number one of baking: you got to taste it, especially as you go. You got to taste it as you go.
1: Do you have a favorite book or, or podcast or TV show you've been checking out?
0: Well, obviously, I love this podcast. And I really do. I <laughs> listen to this podcast. So uh, I'm a big fan of the the podcast. Uh, TV shows, I I confess, I got into Loki, the new Marvel show. It's great. It's great. I just wish they would put it all out, out at once so that we can all binge watch it.
1: I know. It is one of those shows where I, I really do wish we could watch it at once. It's too... It's too crazy to go in between these cliffhangers every episode. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah. And especially with young children, I feel like, hey, I have some time now. I may not for a month. So let me just binge watch it now.
1: <laughs> right. I, I just did that. Uh, I just did that recently with this uh, show, Lupin, where I ca- I watched the entire, like all five or six episodes or whatever it was on, on Sunday afternoon because I was like, all right, I have time. Baby's asleep. Let's roll.
0: Yeah, oh, there you go. You got a marathon sleeping session at two months.
1: Not quite. he, he woke up a few times, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> hang out. He goes back to this is it's still the days of like multi naps, which is, you know, enjoy it. Enjoy it while it lasts.
1: I'm trying. Um, okay, last question. What what's your uh, one piece of advice for uh, for CMOs trying to figure out their demand gen strategy?
0: Start with listing to your customers and what has worked successfully and not worked successfully for you before. So probably start with the analytics uh, and then define your strategy.
1: Amanda, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for joining a true demand gen visionary in our midst. Um, For our listeners, obviously you've heard a million times, but go to g2.com, set up your profile. If you haven't claim your profile, if you're a big company, Uh, and, uh, and just generally, uh, you know, poke around if you, if you've never done it before, it's, it's the best man. Any, any final thoughts, anything to plug here?
0: No, I think you did the plug for G2. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, g2.com and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It was an honor and I'm a fan of the work and what you all do.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks so much. The ManGen Visionaries is brought
2: to you by our friends at qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way b2b companies sell go to qualified.com to learn more